Crumb. Welcome back, everybody, to another Cromtober Spectacular. This is the the kickoff to our uh, 2023 Halloween October season. And uh, I'm Luke. I'm Jonathan. And we are joined by uh, John Langan. We have uh, a big catch, as it were, here on the show for for Cromtober 2023. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well, thank you. Yay, Cromtober! You know, it sisters up with Rocktober, Orktober, uh, so like, many Tobers. I like Cromtober. I like Cromtober. Cromtober <laughs>, laughs at your other Tobers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this episode is coming out as we're we're wrapping up our 18th season, uh, revisiting the Conan stories. But we need to take a little hiatus as we do to talk about to talk about spooky stuff, and that's what we're going to get into tonight. We're going to generally focus on uh, John's work and meander about with some discussion of maybe pulp influences on him. We'll talk about Robert E. Howard, of course, and some linkages there. But I mean. There's a lot of stuff to get into. So, uh, John, we normally do a couple things as far as the start to the show. We like to talk about what we might be drinking. And then we also like to talk about maybe something that we've been reading or listening to or watching. And we call that the one thing. Just a little bit of spice to get us going. So I'll start as far as what I'm drinking. I have the appropriate orange labeled Sam Adams Oktoberfest because it's that time of the year where you can buy it in bulk in all your stores. So that's what I'm drinking. Uh, what do you guys got going? I have a bourbon barrel currently. The whole barrel? No, I didn't put a crazy straw in a barrel and start sucking. Okay. Is it the Kentucky bourbon barrel ale? That's the one. Delicious. Pretty tasty. I've got a milkshake. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> do you really? Yeah, I've got a, a milkshake from a local ice cream place called Freshies. That makes handmade. They, they make handmade ice cream. Everyone that works there looks like they're 13 years old. It's yeah, very, it's like very strange, but good ice cream. So yeah, I, I got a milkshake. I've heard that their milkshakes bring all the barbarians to the yard. Yeah, all the barbarians come to the yard. <laughs> come on, everybody! It's it's a milkshake. Come on, do it now. Uh, I have um, uh, Poland Spring sparkling spring water, blood orange hibiscus flavor. Which oh, I stole damn. from my wife. I feel a little bit bad about that, but well, we just recorded that sounds your delicious for posterity. So, only I know exactly, exactly. Years from now, she'll be like, and she'll bring it up. You know, she'll have it on her phone or something like that. A little clip. Remember this? It'll be her. I ringtone. knew it was <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I stole this from my wife. Oh, honey, someone's calling. <laughs> <laughs> We're fans of the the sparkling water around here as well. Oftentimes, that gets the nod. I'm going to have to search out. You said it was hibiscus and... Blood orange hibiscus. Poland yeah. spring, sparkling spring water. 
I like me some blood orange there. So. Well, you know. Well, we'll uh, we'll kick it on over. We'll do a little bit of the the one thing music now. We'll jump over to something we've been getting into. This is going to be, well, we we tend to refer to to John by John a lot of times, but in the interest of keeping things more specific, we'll go Jonathan and John here, right? It's a Jonathan. Uh, a Jonathan, yeah. Jonathan. Jonathan, do you have a one thing you'd like to share with the class? I do have a one thing to share with my fellow classmates. Uh, I have recently gotten into the Neil Gaiman Library series from Dark Horse. Uh, they're oversized collections uh, that seem to be his some of his short stories that have been adapted into comic book form. I've just gotten through, I think, three-fourths of the first one, and I'm quite taken with it. The first one uh, in the, the book is called A Study in Emerald, and it's a cthulhu story mixed with Sherlock Holmes, except there's a twist uh, that you don't necessarily know if you are going in blind. And then the second story is called Murder Mysteries, and it is framed around the first murder in heaven involving some angels, and it was quite good. Uh, Ragwell, the, the archangel of vengeance, is the narrator. And then the most recent one I finished was How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is Neil Gaiman and uh, Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. And it was nothing that I expected. Uh, they're all very pretty. The art has featured P. Craig Russell and Raphael Albuquerque as well. So if you're into Neil Gaiman stuff, I think it should be on your list. And from what I've seen, they're not out of print, so they're easy to find. Cool. The study in Emerald's real good. Yeah, so you've got, okay. So we could talk about it sometime, and I don't have to spoil it for, okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't read any of those, but that's a, like, straight up, uh, stone cold list of uh, of illustrators. Like yes. I don't even know which of those I would dig the most of. I like all of them a whole whole lot, but I really would be curious to see the uh, the Bond Moon collab with Gaiman. It was very interesting. Uh, just like the setup is these two English boys. They're kind of like wandering around, drunk in some English city, trying to find a party uh, that one of them was invited to, and they find a different party that there are only girls at. But there's something mysterious about them, uh, perhaps even otherworldly. And one of them is trying to learn how to talk to girls. And I think that a girl reads Atlantean poetry to him and like almost supercharges the atmosphere. So it's very cool. It's very weird. Nice. John, I know I've heard you uh, talk about a love of comics. Do you still get a chance to read? Are you involved in that? Uh, yeah, m- mostly what I read is uh, the, the collected editions, the trade paperback editions, because, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of cheaper. And a lot of times I like to be able to just read six issues at a, at a spell. Um, right now, most of what I pick up are, are sort of horror and horror adjacent comics. So um, something is killing the children. 
oh, is nice. uh, is really really terrific. And the the adjunct series to that, uh, House of Slaughter, those are those are terrific. Uh, just off the off the top of my head, I was a huge fan of the Goon, and um, I still love the Goon. Uh, friends of mine, Nathan Ballingrud, you know, was like, oh, I like it, but man, it's just like. It, it can just be so dumb and so childish. And I was like, I know, isn't it great? Yeah. You know, um, it's it's and, and, and Eric Powell is just a, a, I, I feel like he's the closest thing to a, a sort of a, a what's the right word, a visual child of Bernie Wrightson uh, when Wrightson was doing the, the early swamp thing. And he's that, that same kind of plastic feel to his to his characters. Um, I'm trying to think what. Uh, what else I've been like, I went through, you know, Harrow County, the, the, um, and a couple of Colin Bunn's things. Um, he did what, what turned out to be a really interesting riff on, um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. You, you don't realize that's what's going on, but it's about a family, a crime family that has figured out how to take the essential salts out of people and turn them into sort of drug form. And it, it sort of allows you in a, in a crisis, situation you can pop a little of like a, a special forces person and uh and take care of business or, or whatever um yeah he's 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 incredibly uh he's incredibly inventive and uh you know mike mignola um still uh still doing solid work i uh i haven't kept up i think the last thing in the hellboy series i read was the hellboy and hell pairing of of graphic novels i haven't read um when Hellboy comes back to Earth, I haven't I haven't really caught up on that. So I haven't really for a, for a while. You know, every now and again, I'll 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 order like a whole bunch of like Swamp things. So I, I'm I'm behind on Swamp thing like by probably a decade at this point. But at, at some point, I'll catch up on those. And uh, John Constantine, I was I was kind of closer on, but I also kind of felt. I also kind of felt they were kind of screwing up the character in in some ways. Like I think that's a great character and i think the original run of that comic is is one of the great runs of any comic book but i i think with the new 52 and that sort of stuff uh they they kind of really weren't sure how to fit him into that exactly and so they tried to make him too much of a superhero and uh, uh yeah so i would love to write john constantine at some point i think like writing comics from what i can tell can be a really horrible experience and working in comics can be a really horrible experience but i all that would all that said i would still love the chance to to take a shot at john constantine but he wouldn't be in charge of a justice league if you were in charge of him <laughs> well the, the thing is that like dc and like alan moore got this right in the original when he took over the swamp thing right um like all of those characters work well together so um i can remember reading i think it was issue 50 of of his run on the swamp thing where it's it's the primordial darkness is approaching heaven and on one side of the metaphysical divide you have dead man and the phantom stranger and the swamp thing and etrigan they're all trying to fight this thing and then on our side you've got uh constantine and zatanna and zatara and, and all this kind of stuff trying to do their thing and um and there was a lot to be done with those with those characters, uh, uh, you know, in more than just a Justice League kind of way. And, yeah, I would like to see somebody figure that out again, you know, kind of get back to that, which I'm sorry, maybe there's a lot I don't know. And I don't mean to, you know, <laughs> disrespect anybody who's doing brilliant work right now. And they're like, screw you, Langan, which is sort of I'm allowing myself the fantasy that there's like this huge crowd of 
people who are hanging on my every word, you know, but, but yeah. Well, I think Jim Lee blocked me. Otherwise I would definitely put you in contact with him to get you on constant. You're, you're also assuming that anybody listens to this show. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what are you, what are you saying? <laughs> my time is short. I'm drawing closer to death. Are you telling me I'm wasting that time? Is it, is it twisted and Lovecraftian in a way? Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's 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 worthy of a Robert E. Howard villain. <laughs> Conan, now you draw closer to death on my podcast. We did two hours of your life. <laughs> How do you feel? Uh, Rom. God. All right, Josh, do you got a one thing? Yeah, I, you go. Okay. Uh, I've been reading stuff from another horror author. I don't know. Can we can we talk about another horror author if one horror author is on our show? I'm going to do it. Uh, this guy's name is son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, this guy's name is Laird Baron. You ever, ever heard of him? Oh my God. Every place. Like, anyway, yeah. Guy, oh, who, him? Who, Laird? <laughs> I, I got to tell you, man, the story, the broadsword that uh, Laird Baron wrote really freaks me out. And I was going back through some of my, some of my, short story collections that I haven't read. And I love the beautiful thing that awaits us all, but I had never read through uh, the Imago sequence and mm. others. And so that's where I'm at. Yeah. Those, those first, I, I mean, I, I actually think Swift to chase is, is a kind of misunderstood masterpiece. Like a, it's, it's basically um, a kind of novel in stories told backwards. And so it's highly experimental and maybe because it's so experimental, it just kind of, flew under either over or under the the radar but um but yeah those first three books those are um you know with with those alone like if that was all laird had done um people would still be talking about him if those were the only stories he'd written yeah people would still be like oh yeah laird baron but it, you know he's done so much more than that mm -hmm. and and dipped his toe i don't even want to say dipped his toe like written some some pretty good pulpy detective stuff too yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I, I mean, one way to think about what what Laird has been uh, has been doing is is he's been sort of like exploring a kind of character archetype in different genre settings. So, in a, a lot of those early stories, things like the 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 uh, uh, Imago sequence and Hallucigenia, you know, you you have. Um, the, the sort of hard-boiled uh, kind of guy who goes up against like these cosmic horror forces and it doesn't go so well. Um, and then in the Coleridge books and the, in the noir books, you know, same, same kind of guy, except now he's in a situation that at least appears to be more kind of noir naturalistic. And then he started writing a series of stories that are fantasy stories Um of uh, I don't even know how to describe them. There, I guess sword and sorcery is as, as close as you would come. But but you know, sort of sword and sorcery, where every now and again there's a robot. You know, like it's this really weird mixed kind of, of place. And again, same thing. Like like these. In fact, his his Coleridge character has a sort of a uh, a twinner to use uh, King's term uh, in in uh, this place that Laird calls antiquity and and uh, Laird's a big fan of, of Roger Zelazny's work and um, a lot of uh, a lot of the discussion of Laird compares him to Lovecraft or Thomas Ligotti and that's certainly Lovecraft especially is appropriate but the the kind of Zelazny uh, and Jack Vance that's that's very much there too and, and I think those those kinds of characters that you find in Zelazny's uh, Amber books you know who are who are living in these 
different uh, iterations of reality. Um, th- there's that's one way I think to approach what Laird is doing. That's cool. You you invoked some sword and sorcery adjacent things that he's he's doing, and his name was is on a. Uh, uh, upcoming collection of Conan stories as well. Yes, yes. Uh, when he was uh, he was very ill this this past winter, he was in the hospital, and that was the one thing he would not like. Like you know, I was I was helping him out and would reach out to different editors and say, "Look, I'm sorry, he's just not going to be able to do this." You know, oh no, of course we understand. But that was the one thing he would not give up on. And uh, yeah, he's told me the story. I can't reveal it. It's pretty damn funny. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. It's it's going to be great. So, uh, just just kind of to get back into the the spooky season mood, there are a few things that I like to read, and and Laird Baron short stories. That's one of them. Yeah, so absolutely. Everybody, check it check it out if you haven't already. I can't imagine that you haven't, but if you haven't, do yourself a favor, uh, pick up uh, uh, one of those collections. Uh, beautiful thing that awaits us all. I can't I can't recommend enough, and kick back and enjoy. Yeah, nice, man. Well, John, do you want to talk about uh, something you've been enjoying here lately? And I can kind of bring us back home at the the, the end of the, the one things here. Is that all right? I uh, I don't read. I think reading's for suckers. <laughs> <laughs> man, I have to say, uh, you, I, well, maybe this is a question to kind of tee up what your uh, – what your what your one thing might be i don't i don't know but like how much would you say that you read in a given day because you are clearly in you also continually invoke king which i think is a great thing but you know king always has the remarks that uh a writer you gotta read you know like like how much would you say that you actively are are reading and sort of consuming the written word as as opposed to producing it um not as much as i would like uh because i I have a day job and that that takes up a lot of my my time, my mental energy. So, I, I mean, I do reread for my day job a lot. Things like The Odyssey and Hamlet and uh, Things Fall Apart and Lord of the Flies. Um, there were certain things that I, I am obligated to come back to time and time again, which is not, not a bad thing for, for a writer. Um, so I, I try lately, I've, I've been obsessed with trying to sort of tick certain boxes off. So I had never finished uh, Thomas Pynchon's V. And I was like, I'm going to read this if it kills me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I finished it. And my wife read it like 20 years ago. So every morning I'm like, all right, honey, listen, I got to this part of the book. And she was like, I don't uh, stop. Stop. What do you stop? Um, she was doing the Biden thing. Come on. Come on. No, no, come on. It's just stop. No, no. Come on. <laughs> so. Uh, so, yeah, so I finally finished V last uh, actually two nights ago and and then spent like all my free periods yesterday today online trying to look up like what is happening in v because i had my own ideas but um uh and it's funny it's a book i've wanted to read since king listed it in don's macabre and his 100 best horror novels 1950 to 1980 and i actually having gotten to the end of it i'm like yeah i kind of get that i kind of see to a certain extent why he uh why he did that um and i just started reading a novel by uh graham swift called waterland uh which um I'd heard recommended by I think it was Neil McRobert on the Talking Scared podcast. He was mentioning it as this as this kind of great contemporary English novel set in rural England, blah blah blah. And it's like, oh, that sounds like it might be kind of cool. So I'm uh, I'm bookmarking that. I I hadn't heard of that, but that sounds awesome. It looks it looks pretty interesting here. So I mean, you uh, you are an educator. You have a creative writing background. 
and you're an active author, right, John? Like it seems to me like you're you're constantly thinking about writing and you you know the reading that you're doing isn't just within the genre like how important do you think that that is for somebody that's kind of an aspiring writer to be reading outside of the genre that they might be trying to like actively write in well you know that when i was a kid i, I remember listening to to writers saying that you know oh i you know um someone like peter straub right who was a great hero of mine um would say oh read other things than horror and i would think but i don't want to <laughs> So, like, to a certain extent, I would say when you're young and you're infatuated with a genre, read the genre. It's totally fine. You know, if if that's what you like, if that's because the chances are you're going to read it more intensely and even more quickly be, because you love it. So, you know, I, I would say read, read and read and read. If you like horror, you like sword and sorcery, whatever, read that stuff. That's fine. But remain open maybe to other possibilities. And if somebody says to you, hey, you know, this crime novel's really good or, or you know, whatever, uh, give it a shot. You know, see what you see, what you think. And I think that as um, as you get a little older and, and maybe I don't know, you know, you, you sort of feel a little calmer about your relationship to genre, you, you feel like, okay, well, yeah, I've, I've kind of read, you're never going to read everything, but, but at least I've read a little bit. I kind of have a sense of what this thing is about. I kind of have a sense of what I like to do in it and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, read some other stuff. I mean, I mean, I will say that like for me in high school, I guess reading things a little bit later, like junior, senior year, things like the Lord of the flies, things like Jane Eyre, uh, Flannery O'Connor stories, um, and then into college, you know, discovering Faulkner, these were things that really opened up my opened up my writing for me. Oh, you know, like I, I've, I've said this a lot, right? That that having read Stephen King, I was I, I got the idea that you could set horror like in your place or, or set stories in your place, but I didn't really understand the full I don't know ramifications of that or, or the extent to which you could do that until I started to read re really Faulkner I suppose and 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 uh, um a New York writer named William Kennedy who wrote a novel called Ironweed that's this this great great novel uh set uh set over Halloween weekend in the late 30s I think it's like 38 maybe in which the living and the dead are are sort of interacting with each other uh in in a in a ghost uh, uh sort of way but so so reading those things helped me to to add a, a kind of texture to to my fiction I um I'm of the opinion, you know, and I'm not, I can't say I've made an exhaustive scholarly study of this, but I think to myself that like what King did, what Straub did, what Ramsey Campbell did, just, just to name three of the writers that were, you know, whatever in their forties and fifties when I was a kid, you know, and, and they, they were really sort of ruling the roost, but they took the material of, of, uh, traditional horror in, in King's case, uh, Lovecraft and Richard Matheson and, you know, King smashes that together with American naturalism, whether it's in the sort of crime genre, you know, John D. McDonald, something like that, or uh, Frank Norris, uh, Theodore Dreiser. Campbell does something similar. He takes H.P. Lovecraft and he smashes them together with Graham Greene and, and Vladimir Nabokov. And Straub takes Lovecraft, yeah, but but as much, um, you know, M.R. James, Henry James, ghost story stuff, and smashes that together also with Henry James, but also with like Iris Murdoch and, and such. And so I, I think that like, I'm, I'm making it sound... 
much more programmatic than I think it actually was. I think it was just an organic kind of a kind of a thing that happened. Oh, what if I put the chocolate together with the peanut butter? What would that taste like? And and so seeing that in those writers and and seeing how much I love and enjoy their work, like it, it makes sense to me then, oh, that the more that you that you read, the more you allow yourself the possibility that you can do that kind of stuff uh and when i look at like you know like laird for example yeah you know it's obvious that laird has read lovecraft um and has read king and straub but laird has also read a lot of cormac mccarthy um and uh the poet charles simic someone like paul tremblay uh same thing has read a lot of stephen king and peter straub but has also read a lot of uh, uh roberto bolaño and haru Kai Murakami. Um, and, and so those have produced uh, really interesting, uh, really interesting work. So uh, again, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest you want to be like, okay, I'm going to go read David Foster Wallace and then put werewolves in. Um, <laughs> but right. I mean, maybe, you know, someone out there is taking notes. Wallace, but with werewolves, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I think that, and, and I would say that like as for anybody writing uh, anything, uh, any type of genre, you know, whatever, like you're like, oh, I'm writing a vampire story. That's great. Bring everything to that. Like, let everything into that. Like, like don't just think to yourself, oh, it's a vampire story. I've got to, I, I have to keep out all whatever else. No, let let everything in and, and see what happens. Uh, I, I think that's, um, I think that. That's usually like like going nuts, if you will, is is usually the the best course of action. So you uh, you use this term sort of naturalism, I guess. Kind of just a real quick question here, because this is one that I'd scribbled down. But you know, somebody like Stephen King, which is eminently readable, I think for you know anybody that was born like from the the seventies to today if they're if they're into horror they've got at least some like familiarity with his prose style like beyond just making the story more readable just like kind of making it easier to digest and to just sort of like turn page to page what else do you think are the merits of like a naturalistic style for for horror and for like popular horror you know I, I've, I've heard you also talk about like you know the use of the term literary horror if that's just like a uh, a marketing term that's oftentimes bandied about or if it you know if, if literary means you can come back to it time and time again but i know i can come back to a stephen king novel many times over if it's one of my favorites like it, what about like a naturalistic writing style helps or is important for what you would say is like contemporary horror well, I, I think if, if uh, to a certain extent, it has to do with does it fit with you as a, as a writer. Um, I, I think you know Salman Rushdie refers to to realism, quote unquote, as mimetic naturalism, and I I love that uh, I love that phrase because it's so obnoxious um, because it just like anybody think no I'm a realist great you're a mimetic naturalist that's that's awesome you know um, so. So what a more you know realist quote unquote approach allows you to do right is to engage the reader potentially in a way that um, a pro style derived more from uh, Thomas Ligotti and Ligotti is not he's not an overly complex stylist. 
text. You can you can look at uh, you can take any one of Ligotti's sentences. You can you can remove it from the text. You can read, and it's not that hard to understand. It's more with Ligotti. I think a matter of of sort of tone, uh, voice, you know, perspective, right? So that you could probably conduct an experiment where you take one of King's sentences, one of Ligotti's sentences, and you could probably confuse a reader if you pick the right sentences, you know, which, who wrote what, right? But in, in Ligotti's case, in, in any event, um, there is, yeah, there, there's a certain kind of archness of language, which is intended to, to distance the reader. You know, it, it's intended to to let you know you're in a horror story, buddy, or at least you're in a Thomas Ligotti story. Let's put it that way. Whereas King, you know, the the um, the cliche about King, right, is, oh, he's the great storyteller. He's the person who gets you to, come on in, come on, sit down, sit down. Let's, I'm just telling this story. You're here just at the beginning. That's awesome. Can I get you something to drink blood orange awesome terrific you sit here okay and let's talk about this now have i have i told you about the werewolf before we talk about the werewolf i should probably tell you a little bit about the place that the, you know and and so it's that kind of thing that, that gets the reader but you know potentially invested in the in the story now i i realize there are all kinds of very, very valid aesthetic reasons for saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want my reader to feel comfortable. I, I want I want to discomfort my reader in some way. I, I want my reader to feel estranged or strange. And there are some readers who search out that experience. Searchers after horror, as H.P. Lovecraft calls them. Um, there are definitely people who look for that, who um, for them, the, the kind of language that Lovecraft uses or Poe uses is... It's it's almost like the uh, like the opening note. They hear that opening note and they're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna like this." You know, this is this is metal or whatever. You know, um, so I I think the the way I look at things is if as a as a writer, I think you have to go for the style that works for works best for you. I, I think you have to follow that you know that voice, internal voice, however you want to call it, Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder. At the same time, though. I think if if you think I want to write something that's really crazy and weird and that sort of stuff, be aware it isn't going to work for everybody. Uh, nothing will work for everybody. That's the thing, right? I, I mean, but um, I, I think sometimes people, you know, write very sort of baroque and elaborate sentences, stories, and then they're like, "Why does anybody like this?" or "Why? How come Stephen King's popular and I'm not?" And it's like, well, you know, let's not be too coy. Right. I, I mean, I, my feeling is whatever your aesthetic choice is, own that aesthetic choice um, and and then see what you can do with it. Take take that aesthetic choice as far as uh, as you can go with it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And let's go ahead. And in the interest of moving along with the the one thing, we're going to skip the outro music here. And let's just suffice to say that my one of my one things lately is, of course, been prepping up for John's visit here. So I've been reading a bunch of Corpse Mouth, which is your your newest collection. Right, John? It is. And thank you for doing that. You know, I guess carrying on with this this topic that you're that you're hitting on as far as like read what you want <laughs> read what you want and write kind of in that style that you can own, you know, the, the corpse mouth collection, I guess the proper term for it is, uh, the title is corpse mouth and other autobiographies. And I, you know, you, you make the remark in the, the afterwards sort of, uh, stories behind the story section, you know, that the material that's in here is all very much grounded in your personal experiences, but you get into some heady topics, across the various stories that are here, but all of them so far, and I'm not totally through with that. I've got a couple outstanding stories that I haven't gotten to just yet, but 
everything that I've ever read from you is is eminently readable. Uh, Thank you. And admittedly, I haven't read. I know you've got another collection before this that's called uh, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies, and I don't think that I've read anything from that. But I've heard you say uh, elsewhere that that's you presenting stories that are you writing kind of in the shadow of, say, Lovecraft or M.R. James or various writers that inspired you. Like you would probably be able to pick up the stylings. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. What, what happened was I had this bunch of stories. I wanted to put together like this big collection of stories, like uh, skeleton crew King's collection. Right. I love that book. And, but I was also like, ah, but you know, what's my theme? What, what ties them together? And I realized that I had written almost all of them for like tribute anthologies, a lot of HP Lovecraft related stuff, because that was what was big, you know, that was what was what was being asked for, but there were things for uh, a Ligotti tribute anthology for uh, for a Robert W. Chambers anthology, and I kind of realized as well that in in writing them, even when I wasn't always consciously like writing for an anthology, write, writing for a, um, a writer, as it were, that there were still writers present, if you will, in what I was doing. Doing and I thought, oh, okay. Well, that's a kind of interesting way to put these things together. So, you know, I I've said that I think that that Corpse Mouth and Children of the Fang they almost should be read together. To a certain extent, some of the stories in Corpse Mouth were written at like in between the stories in in Children of the Fang. But as I put the stories for Children of the Fang together, I was like, hang on a second. You could take this other these stories, like sort of slot them out, and they would make a collection on their own that would work nicely together. But the two books go together as like this kind of, you know, I, I don't know what, um, look at some of my influences and look at some of, of my autobiography. Cool. Cool. And the, you've got those two. And then Safira came out pretty, uh, just a, a short year or so before that, right? Like those are the yeah. three most recent collections and all of those have come out since the fisherman, but were they written like the, the deeper publication history is a lot of these stories, predate or were maybe contemporaneous with you writing the fisherman right yeah yeah the fisherman took me on and off 12 years to finish uh and so i would uh, i would write it and then i'd put it down for a while and i would write other things but sometimes when i was writing those other things i would think of something i'd done in the fisherman i'm like oh wait i can make a connection here and this was something I, I guess I really started to get as as Laird and I became better friends because that was something he was doing very early on, very self-consciously. I'm trying to kind of weave my stories together into a big kind of net, a big web, I guess. And uh, so, yeah, I I didn't do it in every story, but but when I saw the opportunity, I was like, oh, yeah, well, let's relate this to this or let's make use of that weird little detail. Nice. Well, uh Josh, John, do you guys have any questions? I feel like I've been kind of running with a, a handful here, but kind of opening things up at this point, we can kind of we can get into whatever we want. Right. As far as how this conversation evolves, do you guys have any questions that you might want to throw out there about the fishermen or, or otherwise? Sure. Or just life, just life. We could talk about life stuff. What's going on? I, like <laughs> I, do, wanna, I do have some advice questions. Uh, but I'll OK, good, good. Yeah, How it. do you cope with dot dot dot? Eighth grade. Uh, how can I <laughs> regain the sanity that I lose every, on a on a daily basis? Well, it depends on the proof of the alcohol that you're drinking. I guess that's what it comes down <laughs> to. It's one hundred and one now. Okay, good, yep. good. You're heading in the right direction. 
So in the fisherman, the the place in uh, up, upstate New York was just such I don't know such a character in and of itself. Fisherman's Creek and the the lore behind it. It was so much fun to to read and uncover all of all of that. And I just wonder what what was the inspiration for that kind of uh, kind of a setting not just not just the area but like the supernatural element and the folklore stylings that you find in 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 the book about Fisherman's Creek it was you know the the book was my sort of riff on Moby Dick I, I mean that's the sort of short version right and I wasn't going to write about whaling because I, I think that's kind of abhorrent uh, but fishing seemed like an analog right and um yeah I, I live i live not that far away from the ashokan reservoir which is uh, the biggest of the catskill reservoirs and it supplies new york city with a generous portion of its drinking water and i'd always been kind of fascinated by it there were these stories and i, I mentioned them in the in the novel and i think probably anybody who lives next to a reservoir hears similar stories you know that oh if you're in a boat and you float over top and you look down on a clear day you can see the church steeple which is completely not true uh, i don't think of any reservoir because the lead paint <laughs> in the church say would get into the water and poison everybody downstream um but it's, it's such a powerful and such an evocative image that I, I just sort of followed where that uh where that led and i took advice i i guess uh from jeffrey ford who uh, had given this advice to Laird. Here we are back to Laird again. Uh, Laird was was working on the novel that became The Croning, and Ford said to him, when you're writing your novel, especially like your first novel or an early novel, your impetus as a writer is going to be to play it safe, is going to be to hold back. So you know, my first novel, I want to make sure I sell it. And he was like, fight that impulse. Go nuts. Just go crazy. And so that, as, as I was writing and as I, as I got into that middle section, especially, I thought, okay, I'm just going to do what Ford told me to do. I'm just going to go nuts. I'm just going to let this thing get as big as it wants to get. And it, there was always something waiting for me. There was always something, you know, and, and to a certain extent, I, I guess as, as stuff unfolded in the middle, it started to suggest more of what was going to happen at the end. I always knew some of the end but not all of it and and so that middle section helped me to to understand that so i think it's always uh it, it's always understandable uh when you're writing something you think i'm gonna play it safe i'm gonna I'm gonna try and bring the plane in do a nice gentle landing you know um fight that man just i don't know who he's quoting but joe hill says let your freak flag fly man try saying that five times fast but um but do that you know like like just go nuts with it just and and so yeah i was just like okay weird monster sure uh uh, later on somebody pointed out to me that the the sort of central part of the novel or i guess i should say the dead woman who 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 returns from the dead that's very much inspired by pet cemetery which is is one of my favorite of king's novels and which I've, i've read and taught i don't know how many times oddly enough until that was pointed out to me I, like i didn't realize i didn't see that somebody pointed out, i was like oh my god you're absolutely right um what can you do you know so john uh you've got this story structure that i know from 
hearing and, and reading some of your comments elsewhere, like you kind of devise this big middle, which makes for a narrative structure that's a little bit atypical, like rather than having the first third of the novel being this opening up in present day and the middle third is kind of you're jumping back in time and then the final third takes you home. You've got like over half the novel is the story within a story kind of structure. But within that story, within a story structure, it's a series of not vignettes, but like yarns of their own. Did those I don't know if I've ever heard you comment on this, uh, but have those been like were they originally short stories in their own right that became weaved and then you had the the anchor points on the front and the back of it that kind of came later or did that just start as a as a folktale yeah they just know, they just large. started to yeah they just started to expand i really thought that the, i i knew at a certain point when i was writing the fisherman that it it would be long i thought it would be a novella and i thought that that middle section would be maybe 20 pages long like i knew I was writing, but but I didn't think it would become the novel within the novel. Um, as it developed, I kind of really liked the idea of having this framing narrative that was, in in a way, deeply emotional, but also eh, just a couple of guys, you know, and that but but to understand the full impact of that, you had to have this thing that had happened in the past, and you had to have this big crazy story that happened in the past to explain this confrontation these two guys are going to have on a beach uh there was right. something about that that really that really just appealed to me um because i, I guess I, I think that I, I feel like the the more typical structure would be to have the the little thing that happened in the past and now it it, it has this the major things are you know luke i am your father no dad you know that that those little things uh sorry everybody i just spoiled you know, your childhood. Um, but <laughs> the, um, okay. Like, like in that situation, the fact that, that there's been that, I guess it's a big revelation, uh, for Luke Skywalker, but it's not really a huge deal. Right. Uh, in, in the grand cosmic scheme of things, except when it is, except when it's the thing that, that turns Darth Vader from bad to good and, and, uh, it helps everything out. That strikes me as, as the more, typical narrative structure in, in a mystery that the the little detail that that becomes crucial later on i kind of wanted to, to to i i i wound up i guess thinking i'm turning that inside out and i got really excited about that but some of the early reviews that didn't like the book that was exactly what they complained about you know they were like what the hell is this you know Right. And I think it's, uh, you know, so the book won uh, the Bram Stoker Award in what, 16 or 17. And clearly people love it. And like we mentioned earlier, it's being talked about. It's continually being a story that, that you're talking about and people love and have questions about it. You know, it, it was a great effort to just go the distance and put out this weirder structured novel. Well, the thing is, is just just to uh, hopefully is like a, a word of encouragement for anybody who is a writer who's listening to this you know my agent really liked the book uh she went wide with it and nobody wanted it uh and we finally wound up with this you know with ross lockhart whom i knew uh from from having published my first novel uh house of windows when, when he was working at nightshade press and ross took it and believed in it and you know it worked out um and there was one editor before Ross, there was one editor who wanted to like take the middle part of the book and just make that the book, you know, and he tried to pitch it to his publishing team and it didn't work and blah, blah, blah. Um, 
but as you say, like, like the book did has done all right, you know, and, and it's a little snotty of me to say, right. But, but I do feel it like sometimes when you're, you're doing something, it just takes people a little while to catch up to what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, you write something and, and, um, recently, uh, I'm trying to think when this was within the last maybe six months to a year, there was a list of like, you know, who were the, the, the next generation of horror writers. And it was people like, um, Rachel Harrison and Clay McLeod Chaplin, that, that sort of stuff. And I saw some younger writers or newer writers, maybe I should say saying, Oh man, well, I guess I'm not important. And I was like, no, that's, that's not it, man. It's, it's just that people haven't caught up to you yet. You know, you've, you've written a couple of stories, maybe even published a couple of books, but the world hasn't had a chance to catch up to you yet. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the world, like right out the gate, it catches up to somebody. It doesn't catch. There's no catching up. It's just boom, you know, but more often than not, it, it takes a little while. And patience is really, really hard for a writer in all kinds of ways, but it's the great, it's the great virtue, man. Well, you know, so last time we recorded, and this is going to be a little bit out of sequence, but at the time of this recording, the other uh, main bit of prose that I'm digesting is like uh, Catriona Ward's uh, Last House on Needless Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hadn't, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, she was somebody that wasn't on my radar, and then all at once... She's got three novels yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah. that have come out in quick succession over the past like two or three years. And I'm listening to this, the the current novel as an audiobook, and I've got Sundial to read next. And I know that she has a brand new thing that just dropped. And it's like, well, shit, now I'm behind the curve. I'm really enjoying this first book and I like the styling of it. And I want to see what what they're doing next. But like with your short story collections here, like I, I, I guess I first encountered your work in Ellen Datlow's like a uh, uh, best horror of the year. I think it's volume three here that I've pulled up. There was a story called the rebel that was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the rebel fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I really liked that. And I knew, uh, around or thereafter you had the wide and carnivorous sky and other monstrous geographies. And then you've got a little bit, like you had the fisherman come out in 2016 and then a couple years of, of nothing necessarily coming out in terms of like a book, but you're publishing otherwise. And then you've got like these three short story collections that are all coming out over a multi-year sequence. It's understandable to see sort of like how things get, smushed together in terms of how a lot of people read them because a lot of people probably aren't picking things up and i mean i don't want to say this but but a lot of the more niche anthologies like when ellen datlow does a collection on what is it dolls is the the one that the monstrous one came the, <laughs> the, the doll the, uh the, the the yeah the doll collection i think it's called and those um, are cool those are people that like uh are us horror readers are, are oftentimes picking that kind of thing up, but I don't pick up all of the various Ellen Datlow anthologies that come out, right? I can't, I can't necessarily keep up with that big output. So it's easy to see how a writer could kind of get salty, but readers aren't necessarily getting exposed to it. Yeah, I, I would say that the um, so often we as as writers, you know, we're we're often like these kind of like. Um, I, I don't know. We're easily bruised, you know, and um, we take offense and take hurt at things that we shouldn't take offense and, and hurt at. So, um, you know, I have at this point 
enough stories for at least another two collections and maybe maybe two and a half at this uh, at this point they'll come out at at some point i hope sooner rather than than later but i'm also aware that people are still catching up to the the previous short story collections so in Safira, for example which was my third collection my first one after the after the fisherman uh there's a short novel of, you know it's 50,000 words that the the title uh the title novel Safira about a woman chasing a succubus across the country. It, uh, I worked really hard on it. I was really proud of it. And um, the, the book did win the, like, This Is Horror Award or something like that for, for Collection of the Year. But but that short novel, when people are like, when's your next novel coming out? There's a part of me that's like, it came out. It was Safira, you know? But at some point, I, I hope people will sort of, like, start to pick up on that. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. But also because it's a... Uh, what looks like a long story in a bunch of other stories, people may never see it as a, as, as a short novel. They may just be like, Oh, it's just another, you know, it's a, a long story. Right. So you got to be kind to yourself too, because a lot of times I think you turn, you know, if your work isn't succeeding, you turn on yourself. Why am I not any good? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with my writing? Nothing's wrong with your writing necessarily. You know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, um, but, but like, no, it's, it's just that, that the think about yourself and think about how much there is for you to read and, and think about uh, all the books that are sitting around your office, maybe in teetering piles, right. Um, you're going to get to them, right. You, you, you intend to get to them. You will get to them at some point. Um, it's just not necessarily right now, but suddenly you, you pick up uh, uh, Katrina Ward's books and you're like, oh, my God, this is awesome. And now you've got to get to those. And, and so. Um, so, yeah, a lot of this is is what what feels very intentional, even malicious is not. It's just um, it's it's just kind of time and chance um, accident. I mean, look at Sylvia. Uh, what's her name? Sylvia Moreno Garcia and Mexican Gothic. Yeah, hit, hit huge. Right. Um, but that wasn't her first that wasn't her first crack at bat, you know, like. No, no, it, it wasn't. And, and you know, um, and, and it just who knows why that landed the way it did. Um, you know, it, it became a, a pretty decent bestseller. It got pretty decent notice. And 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 obviously, you know, good for Sylvia. And this this discussion actually kind of makes me think about folks like uh, Robert E. Howard, like. H.P. Lovecraft, who were visionaries kind of ahead of their time in, in terms of creating these whole genres, establishing these whole genres, sword and sorcery, cosmic horror, or at least fitting in with those those genres and taking them uh, a big step forward. You know, you just never know what is going to hit and, you know, make people see your larger body of work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when both men die... You know, obviously they're not, you know, Howard's mother has just died. Um, he's not in a good mental place. Um, Lovecraft, when when he dies, I mean, it, it's all, all his work is kind of out of print. You know, he's, he dies a horrible death of, of kind of uh, brought on in part by terrible nutrition, by a diet of beans and ice cream and, uh, you know, a, a poverty diet. Uh, and yet now he, he's... 
uh, he, yes, we, we recognize he's more problematic in a lot of ways uh, in, in the last several years, and rightly so, uh, as, as with Howard. But at the, at the same time, there's, there's no denying the, the influence that they've had on, on horror culture, you know, pop culture in general, horror culture in particular. So I, I think that um, you, you don't know when you shuffle off your mortal coil. Um, yeah, everything could be out of print by the same token everything could be in print i mean that's a, that's the flip side to the coin right that's the you know the hopeful side is hey your day is coming the 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 sobering side is it it may have already arrived you know that may be uh that may be it or in the case of robert w chambers you know the the king in yellow guy i mean yeah. chambers like we know him for that one collection of stories a couple of extra stories get added in he wrote a ton of other books it's just that nobody reads them anymore. It, to the extent that they're available, I guess they're sort of kept in print because people who who like the King in Yellow are like, let's see what else that guy did. And so it is an interesting thing for for I want to say like our genres for like uh, speculative fiction, so fantasy and uh, science fiction and horror. Uh, so much material is out there that is accessible, but there's also these wide expanses of just empty water. Like if you know where you're looking and you can get clever with your online searches and you're in a dusty, musty bookstore that still has a stack of like seventies or eighties paperbacks, you can find some really amazing horror that's out there. That's not, that's just not readily available, right? Like there's so much that's not in the ebook ebook format or has just been lost to the sands of time. It's really interesting how there's an abundance of things for, for some people uh, like Lovecraft that, you know, they were, they were out of print at the time of his passing or, you know, just unavailable. And now it's, it's everywhere and it's lauded in a lot of ways, but there's so many other things that, are hard to get and there's things like paperbacks from hell or whatever those types of series that get that out <laughs> you know it's super it's super cool those types of efforts but you know holy crap you know we need more carl edward wagner horror collections you know why not you and i needs to come out to follow up on the 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 valancourt release of yeah, yeah. you know uh, in a lonely place like we need that kind of thing there's a lot of people that know and want that kind of stuff and with our show and with the sword and sorcery world there's just a a list of people where we would love to be able to get the them back in print so that we could actually read them in a legit way. Yeah. Some of, um, I want to say like in, in, um, in the UK, my wife is Scottish and we used to go to, to Scotland every year together. And, um, and one of the things I noticed was, um, God, what were they? The, masterwork series and i'm trying to remember the name of the publisher that put them out but but for a while they they were like british publishers who were doing like these these omnibus editions of like all of william hope hodgson's novels or um you know a bunch of jack vance's novels or something like that and it was it was this great like almost like public service you know like or, or service to the genre that oh if you wanted to find these things uh yeah they were not terribly expensive and then it was like oh okay now i've i've got a copy of the nightland uh, is this uh, uh it's is it orion publishing company it may uh, they, be or glance they, it might have been glance glance yeah because there's like a fantasy masterwork series and that's yeah. how i was able to get the Jack Vance tale of the dying earth, like collection. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's all of them all in one place, but like, that's a, that's a hard thing to collect these days. Like if you yeah. want to try to get all the dying earths together, is that how you got your, uh, Fofford and gray mouser also? Is that, um, 
those I have like the science fiction book clubs, which oh, are also right. a great way to seek out a lot the of the stuff that we're talking about the here. Good those thing are so about good. like like those is is that the paperbacks are still the the um, the original paperbacks are still you can go on like ABE books or something like that, and right. you can get them reasonably cheaply. But there there is. Something Grady uh, talks about in in paperbacks from hell is that you know like some of his impetus behind that is is just to be a kind of smartass you know and and just to be like oh look Nazi leprechauns you know right um, right right but in the in the course of reading for that book he actually discovered a few writers where he was like wow these people these is actually this is a really good writer who's almost lost to the sands of time you know and and I want to believe because. I'm like Pollyanna that, you know, quality will out and, and that eventually people that, you know, the, the worthy will be rediscovered and blah, blah, blah. But the, the, the fact is that doesn't always happen or it certainly no, does, yeah. it doesn't always You're happen right. fast, you know? And I think that, that I, I think about this sometimes in debates about fantasy and I realize that what we're talking about is sort of outside of the framework of a lot of those of those arguments but we talk sometimes about the the power that that canonical literature has and i i you know shakespeare yes absolutely tremendous cultural capital but fritz Leiber say um not so much <laughs> which which is a shame because i i think you know the fawford and the gray mouser books um our lady of darkness uh conjure wife a, a bunch of the short stories um are as good as anything anyone did ever any place um so i i think that there's a, a way in which the the afterlife of writers is like this very very fragile thing and it's very easy to see how um certain writers can just disappear uh when when actually even by the time when i was when i was an undergrad um say taking my english lit survey class edmund spencer was already on the way out um, in the 1950s, say it was Spencer, Milton, and Shakespeare. That was the the big three of English lit. You know, by the late 80s, early 90s, Spencer. And I'm not saying nobody reads Spencer, but I'm saying Spencer is now that you don't really need him for English lit one anymore. Now, and even Milton is is I, I think struggling a bit. It seems to me now that it's much more something like Chaucer, Shakespeare, and maybe Dickens. Um, so these things they they do change. Over the course of time, and um, sometimes, sometimes rightly so. But I also think, um, yeah, Fritz Leiber, let's say, is is such a great writer um, that it 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 strikes me as a shame that more people aren't reading him, aren't aren't aware of him. I've got a I've got a follow up here. Do you guys have anything you want to throw out? Life advice. I'm here for the life advice. <laughs> I'm getting to it. Uh, one one thing that you mentioned is that the fisherman is is kind of uh, uh, Moby Dick as as an inspiration, and I think it's awesome. Like as as Luke and I were talking about the book, one thing that struck me is this you know nested hierarchy of story within a story within a story, and it just seemed to scream Call of Cthulhu to me. And to to hear you talk about Moby Dick, like I hadn't thought of it in that way. I think there's maybe on the on the back cover there's a blurb about about Moby Dick, but I I didn't really think that as I was reading. I was thinking, okay, what Cthulhu monster is is going to be at the center of this whole thing? What what right. is uh, 
the 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 Leviathan. What is Der Fisher, uh, or who is this guy? Um, and so it's it's interesting, like to to for me to think about, like I see these Lovecraftian ties, um, and I wonder if uh, you thought about it from that standpoint as you were working on it. No, to, to be honest, it's it's funny. Like, I totally get why people say the book is cosmic horror. But when I was writing it, I was not thinking about it as as cosmic horror. Um, I was just like, this is just this story that I'm writing. And um, if anything, I guess I thought about it as like a monster story. Um, okay. Oh, there's this dead woman and then there's this big monster, you know. Um, this kind of kaiju kind of, of thing. Um, my... And I've, I've said this before that my wife at the time was reading our son the um, Rick Riordan's uh, Egypt books, the Cain Chronicles, and one of the monsters in there is this is this figure from Egyptian mythology called Apep or Apophis, which is this this giant serpent with the head a flint uh, a head made out of flint, which is trying to eat the sun. And I just love that image but then i also loved it because it hooked up to my mind with uh the the, the midgard serpent yormagunda and um and the leviathan and, and sea monsters and so on so um i just thought all of that was really cool and and i wanted um i i th- think sort of uh, subconsciously i'll say that you know the, the fisherman wants to bring his his dead family back that's that's his goal and and uh, harnessing or or catching the the leviathan gave me a kind of a a nice image a concrete image for the 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 difficulty of that how difficult it would be to 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 do that the kind of power or or whatever that that you would need um and i, I think um what i did with Moby Dick was to sort of scramble it to a certain extent. So it's not like a one-for-one thing. But uh, the painting in Herman's Diner comes from uh, uh, there's a similar painting in in Moby Dick and and so on. When when uh, the the fisherman himself is is being hauled out to uh, to sea uh, when uh, after his initial counter with encounter with Rainer and the other uh, loggers, some of what he's screaming is is what Ahab screams as as he's being pulled away. So there were there were places where I wanted to uh, um, I wanted to do almost what King said he did. Uh, with Salem's Lot, where he described it as playing handball with Dracula, where Dracula was like this kind of wall, and he we just sort of smack his novel up against it and see see what the contact was, see where. And so sometimes it was it was kind of linear, and sometimes it was all out of order, and and so that was that was more how I thought about uh, about what I was doing. And then yeah, I, I've been lots of people. I've been introduced to feels like lots of bookstores and library festivals where they're like this is cosmic horror which you know okay (laughs) you know it's got a big monster in it okay yeah and so to kind of maybe move another way like it's also a very quiet horror story and you know Aikman is somebody that you've been compared to with with some of your work too where it's like the fisherman is a story about just horrible loss and you don't necessarily see that with some sort of like aseptic protagonist in a Lovecraft story, right? Like, like cosmic, cosmic horror can have these very immediate personal characterizations, but they can also be just big picture, very, very dry in their presentation of whoever your protagonist is. So 
maybe talk about that if you would, John. But then the other question to kind of that I would throw in there too that you mentioned is that you mentioned with your last bit about various book fairs and that kind of thing are big ass monsters. And I've heard you talk about Kaiju before you clearly like some big ass monsters. We read homemade monsters as a group here. And I know in the back matter of corpse mouth, you say that that was one of your favorite stories. You know, if you were to pick out of this collection, like up to that point, that was something that was a big favorite for you. It is a very personal and uh, emotional story on the basis of the bully. The kid is dealing with, but you know, You've got a big ass monster in there, like, and that, I, I think it is a good summation of cosmic dread, you know, at the personal level, but also this big sort of big picture spookiness. Like, do, does all cosmic horror need to have a big ass monster? And I know the answer doesn't have to be yes for that. Like, but just to no, it, it does. Up, like, it absolutely what, does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you it think? It doesn't have a big ass monster. What is it doing? Come on. Come on. What are you like, doing? What's, <laughs> like, what's the connection there between, like, scale? Because to me, it's a cool thing. You have big-ass monsters, but you size also have Size matters, people. Size matters. Um, <laughs> if the cosmic monster is not on, on screen or on the page, you should be thinking, what's the cosmic monster doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that um, the – I think a few things, right? I, I think that love – Craft sometimes gets an unfair rap. Like I think some of his characters are actually a, a, just a little bit more developed than he gets credit for. But uh -huh. it is it is true that this is this is a general complaint that people have about horror fiction, and maybe true of certain kinds of horror fiction that the character is less important than the sort of horrible thing that happens to the character. You know, the revelation that happens or the trap that they fall into that chops them. In the little pieces or, or, you know, what have you. So, um, I, I think and it's funny because, you know, if you think about, um, even, even Robert E. Howard to a certain extent, um, and, and Fritz Leiber, and then later on, you know, Stephen King and Peter Straub and such, um, you know, what you get from what you learn from them as, as a writer is, is something about character is, is something about how to, uh, how to develop character and, and how to create a character that is at least, um, if, if not always all the way round, at least slightly less flat. And um, I think um, I think with any kind of narrative, I think if you, you know the, the more that you can attach to a character, the more that you as the reader can attach to a character, um, the the better things are going to go uh, for the for the narrative and and from the writer's perspective, right? Um, I think I, I find myself that when I write, when I know that I'm going to write cosmic horror, so when I'm writing for like a Lovecraft anthology or a Lovecraft themed anthology, I quite often wind up writing these very, very like Raymond Carver-esque domestic kinds of, of scenes. And it's very strange to me because I don't really set out to do that. That's just kind of what happens. And then the big cosmic thing is like hanging out in the background or or whatever. Um, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why that is. If it's just sort of like perversity on my part, if there's a part of my brain that's like, nope, nope, you're not going to get your big cosmic bond. That's in the background. That's, this is a story about a guy tending a garden. That's all this is about. Um, I, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> just a peculiarity of, of my own, uh, you know, my own psyche. Um, I think the, the thing with monsters, it's funny. I was thinking about because there's all this Godzilla stuff going on, right? And as you know, you know from the story, I love Godzilla. Godzilla made a huge impact on me when I was a kid. There was uh, Marvel Comics did 
their uh, American version of Godzilla, you know, Godzilla in the Marvel Universe uh, with uh, Doug Mensch writing and Herb Trimpey drawing uh, for 24 glorious issues. Uh, I still have the black and white paperback around here somewhere. Is that, is that um, where Fred Ronan shows up? Is there that a, is where yeah. Fred Ronan shows up in issue number eight when they have a fight in uh, New Orleans, I think it is, actually. Nice, nice. Um, it's uh, And Yetrigar, the, the giant Yeti monster, and then there's the evil trio of alien monsters anyway um so uh, so yeah i love i love me some big monsters and and more recently uh, um the um, the legendary pictures yeah i've been there good or bad i've been there you know opening or just about opening day for all of them and uh, and yeah i i, I come back in uh, i come back to giant monsters on a on a semi-regular basis so in um in children of the fang there's a story called uh, episode three in the great plains on the snow or in on the great plains in the snow i think it is uh which is about the ghost of a t-rex that's eating people um it's a whole it's it's that's a nutty story but um so yeah i come back to these kind of kaiju things every every now and again and of course there's now there's like a whole bunch of godzilla stuff that's coming out and there's a gamera cartoon that's coming out and and i'm very happy at the at the same time, though, I, I was thinking about, you know, the way in which Godzilla as a concept at, at the moment has has been kind of like drained of of its real kind of oomph. Um, you know, that the, the 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 whatever it is, 50, is it 54 or 56? 56, I think, is the first Godzilla movie. You know, that's the war. That's the war that is that is coming back. That is, um, yeah, to- it's totally cosmic in the scope of like the horror. This is, it is not a monster. It's it's different. Well, yeah, and the thing is, right, that Tokyo had not been nuked, but it had been firebombed. And what does Godzilla show up and do? He sets Tokyo on fire. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that early movie, to, you know, Godzilla just has it. It's it's a very different movie from the others. The closest that maybe they get is the smog monster, which is even just kind of silly. But at least there's some like that. That's a monster that has something to it, I guess. I always thought I thought that the recent movies missed a chance to have Godzilla as um, like there's some kind of climate thing that you could do with godzilla there's some way in which you know Ghidorah is this monster from outer space and godzilla is like this kind of antibody that the earth produces to deal with this but then what happens when godzilla starts to notice what we're doing to the earth there could be some really like that could actually be kind of interesting stuff it's it's um all of that has been kind of taken out of it the, the special effects are brilliant i love it you know um i've got you know i've got my classic godzilla on my desk he always hangs out with me in watches me right um but uh, but yeah I, I think i think that those things can be really effective the the danger of course right is that cthulhu becomes just another kaiju you know mm-hmm. lovecraft lovecraft wants him to be this thing that you just look at it and you lose your mind because it is so crazy and um i ironically I think the Dunwich Horror, which has certain kinds of like sort of narrative problems, there there were ways in which it's a very effective giant monster story. It's a giant invisible monster running around, knocking over barns and stuff, you know. And at the end, there's just a sort of glimpse of it, you know. And 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 that um, as a giant monster story, that actually works not not terribly. But um, Giant monsters are funny. I, I remain fascinated by them and will return to them. Paul Tremblay, my good 
friend writes a, he's, uh, many of his short stories are giant monster short stories, which is funny because most of his novels are, right, are they're much not, more. Yeah. yeah. But if you read his <laughs> short stories, you'll find giant monsters all over the place. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, what's that scene that's in the Dunwich Horror where, like, the farm family, like, the, the, the line is a cold, like, the cold, it's a cold line, and then an entire farm family is sort of like just wiped out when the, when everybody gets there to check out what's happened. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's just been bowled over and it's this force of nature, this, this invisible thing. Don't they, don't they use like a, uh, uh, invisible monster detect detection powder or something? Yeah. They have yeah some at the end, got like yeah. some kind of there. it's, it's MacGuffin, you know, here we've got MacGuffin powder. Here you go. <laughs> and I love that. It's like the, the town spoke, they're using their spyglass and they're kind of describing it, the narration of it. And yeah, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. It's the scientists. Yeah, they're casting spells. They're up on the hilltop. It's so good. That's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, I wanted to ask you, John, if you had seen Shin Godzilla. Yes, yes, I did. I did see Shin Godzilla. Um, and I, I liked it, but, you know, it's trying to satirize bureaucracy, right? Sure. That, yeah. that we could have we could have this kind of like toxic events that becomes known as Godzilla um, and the bureaucracy would still not be able to figure out like, like what to, what to do about it. Yeah. Um, and and which, that, that one seemed very cosmic horror to me in, in, in so much as like the, the bureaucracy doesn't care. Like the, the people who are supposed to care about us don't care. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maintaining power and saving face and not so much about, what is actually happening to the people of the country? I I, I thought that one was a, a really good one. I was actually curious. I mean, I mean, um, there was talk at one point that they were going to make a sequel to that, and I was like, man, how would you do that? I, I don't like like how would you do that in an effective way? Um, and I don't because that that iteration of Godzilla did not seem in any way uh cuddly you know did not seem to have any possibility to transform into anything that would become you know the protector of japan or whatever so um there was actually it was a fascinating man a fascinating godzilla uh like sort of anime thing that was on netflix a couple years ago which was set in the far far future uh where godzilla just gets bigger and bigger and and uh Ghidorah turns into a trio of black holes and it was uh mecha godzilla is like a sentient city there was some it was it was actually it was kind of cool it was kind of trippy cool no i mean i i remember seeing that that was posted but i never watched it yeah it's worth it's worth uh, it's it's uh, the affectations it has a lot of the sort of anime affectations so characters get very excited there's a lot of screaming and yelling and you know but um but it's still there are worse ways to to kill uh you know kill a half an hour other questions that you guys have? I've got a couple more that I definitely wanted to, to throw at John if he's if he's happy to entertain a few. Is that okay, John? Yeah, no, I'm totally fine. I'm still waiting on Jonathan. I just he's he's like there he is. He just, he doesn't look happy. He's, he's just I'm like drawing, no, is he though? I'm dread, drawing yeah. red Ronan. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, all right. I'll accept that. I'll accept red Ronan. <laughs> Mention more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, John is the uh, the the stoic Chromecaster and the the comic book expert of the of the crew uh had, for I, sure i had a question i guess we read core which i found to be a really cool story um kind of a, a really cool look into your uh, uh your halloween history perhaps it's very personal i was curious yeah, yeah. is this your most 
like most personal or most cherished Halloween memory are these uh, Halloween walks or is there something from your childhood that made Halloween even more important to you than this adult memory? You know, I have a, I have a memory um, and how old would I have been like maybe third grade or something like that of, of uh, dressing up as Dracula. And I had my first communion suit on and uh, my hair slicked back and I had the plastic fangs and my mom took one of her uh, skirts and like pinned it to my, uh, my suit jacket as a cape. And I did the white face makeup, makeup and all that sort of stuff. And Oddly, that costume really sticks in my mind. Um, that that really, I remember being outside dressed up like a vampire, you know. And there were other costumes I made um, when I was a little older. I made a costume as like a kind of Celtic warrior kind of kind of thing that was cool. It had a lot of tinfoil, um, but it was still it was it was it was a neat costume. But that Dracula costume, there was something about that where I really felt. Um, because, of course, when I was a kid, all the costumes came in boxes, and they were all highly flammable. Um, and you got, like, a mask, and then you got this, this like, I don't even know what material it was made out of thing that you put on. And so you had, like, the Frankenstein mask, and then on your costume it said, Frankenstein, right. you know, tell right. everybody. <laughs> but this was this was dressing up like Dracula. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a, it was a different kind of costume, a different level of costume. And, um and yeah, I, I, it's funny. I don't know if I've ever had Halloween costume that felt as successful as that one, uh, as that one was. Um, if if that makes if that makes any kind of sense. And I don't, um, I don't know what that says about me exactly. I wrote I wrote an essay a few years ago um, called the Vampire Catechism. And uh, and it makes reference to to that and to you know my kind of lifelong love affair with uh, with the vampire as a, as a monster, Tomb of Dracula. You know, speaking of comic uh-huh, books, yeah. I, I mean, you know the. Where is that? Uh, where is that essay? Is it collected anywhere, John? No, it was it was uh, located online somewhere. Um, I dug it up. I had to do this this um, lecture at a library. Uh, a year or two ago and um, I was trying to figure out you know the usual sort of Halloween kind of stuff I was trying to figure out what to do and uh, I realized I had a bunch of these essays that I had written about monsters and and my sort of uh, childhood with monsters as it were and so on and and uh, and yeah I ran across that one and and I was like man that's actually that's that's a pretty good essay I, I I've got like about you know four or five of them that I think it would be fun to uh, put out like a little illustrated book or something like that. If I could uh, uh, figure out how to do that. I think that's, uh, that seems, I mean, that's super cool. Uh, and I think we can all relate to having uh, those successful costumes that really left that indelible mark on, on us, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I have similar uh, memories of a, of a vampire costume that I, that I wore. And uh, well, I don't know how, yeah, go ahead. I would just say what's, what's fascinating to me is, like, as a kid, I was terrified of Frankenstein's monster. I saw this version of it that my dad let me watch. And and he remains, like, like this sort of primordial monster for me. A few years ago, I watched um, a kind of low-budget movie. And I can't remember what it was called, The Frankenstein Experiment, The Frankenstein Tape, something like that. It's, it was a Canadian film, and it was like a sort of found footage film. And the deal... You know what I mean? And and, and they, they go out, out into the wilderness and the monster is out in the wilderness. And yeah. and 
you pretty much never see the monster. Um, but you hear him just like screaming out. And there's one point where they're in a sort of flat area with a few trees scattered throughout it, you know, evergreens and the monster is out there. And I was just like, you know, I was like five years old or six years old again, you know, just utterly terrified. And what's fascinating to me is I never really had that response from the vampire because the vampire had like a kind of personality. Whereas Frankenstein's monster, and this is of course the film representation, um, is just like, like, like anger and fury and you can't reason with frankenstein's monster you know the best you're going to get is dead is better <laughs> fire bad you know um whereas dracula dracula would still kill you don't get me wrong but at least you can have a conversation with him mm-hmm. yeah he wants to find out more about your wife right yeah <laughs> exactly don't <laughs> tell me more about your wife <laughs> he has a lovely neck <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you a vampire? No. <laughs> Dr. Acula. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess following up. Oh, go ahead, Josh. You've got oh, something. No, I'm go. sorry. I'm, I'm just uh, bewildered by how dumb <laughs> I am sometimes. <laughs> Alucard. <laughs> Alucard yeah. It's Dracula backwards. <laughs> uh, I should have seen it come. Uh, so, so John, it, the essay core that appeared, I think, in like an issue of Shock Totem. Yeah. Uh, what is the what's the the root of that title? Uh, Corey is is uh, uh, it's it's an ancient word for the goddess of the underworld. Okay, um, thank you. So okay. It, it can be another. Um, I, I want to say that it's associated with Persephone, but I think uh-huh. that there there may be a little bit of daylight between them too. That it may be one of those cases where you know two figures get sort of blended together. Okay, do you actually reference that in the essay? Maybe you did, and I just miss the the actual usage of that term but i i found myself wondering that as i was reading that uh, i don't think i do i okay. think i was just being too smart for my own good yeah you're you're too oblique with that <laughs> no, i was just like oh that's... you think robert aikman's oblique i'll give you <laughs> yeah so here's here's my question kind of building on this uh on that essay that's kind of opens up your corpse mouth uh collection so I know that just from from hearing you uh, talk on some other shows, like you know, you've got uh, a child or at least one at least one kid that's off to college. But yep. in that in that essay, you're talking about kind of this golden age of like kids Halloween and scaring the shit out of some kids and the the beauty of it. And you kind of hint at how you yourself get scared in a really really great sort of narrative. I guess my question, like. Have your Halloween traditions, how have, have they changed? Like, you don't, you don't, I know uh, you probably aren't doing a ghost walk <laughs> with, with little kids. That would be, you know, it's, you know if, you, if your own child, like if you're, if your own kids have kind of grown up, you could still do that. That's cool. But, you know, yeah, it's probably, no, come into yeah. my house, little children. <laughs> and it probably doesn't have like the resonance that it did, but like, do you still get jazzed up about Halloween? And if so, is it, is it different than maybe like that, that Bradbury, like golden age of Halloween of like having a kid that's, you know, at that that specific time. It's funny, right? Because, uh, um, there was one night and I, I think it, I thought about including this in the story, but I couldn't quite fit it. The, maybe the next year or the year after it was one of those nights where um, we had an incredibly warm Halloween, usually in, in this neck of the woods, by the time Halloween hits, it's getting colder, but this was like a summer's night. 
And um, my wife and I just sat out on the front porch uh, over which there was a set of stairs down to the road. And there's all these all these kids and parents out just walking along. Our son had already, you know, he was done for the night. And it was it was like this kind of Bradbury kind of moment of like like, a you know, American Halloween or something like that. But in this in this completely sort of sweet and wholesome and, and maybe slightly melancholy kind of kind of way. And at the school I teach at, uh, we usually dress up for Halloween. So last year I was uh, a Teletubby, the red one, uh, middle-aged, you know, it's fallen on sort of hard times, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, which is always fun. You know, it's always when the kids are like, Oh my God, I can't believe you did that. You know, but we, uh, for the first time we took a bunch of them because it's a, it's a boarding school. Will I teach you? And we took a bunch of them trick or treating in, in one of the local neighborhoods where they close off a couple of the a couple of the roads, a couple of the streets, so that uh, everybody can trick or treat there. And by and large, the kids behave themselves, and the ones who misbehave didn't misbehave that badly. And that was actually really sweet. I, I really felt like, uh, in part, because a lot of the kids were from other countries, from China, from uh, from Latvia, from Serbia, and they weren't used to these kinds of of things. These kinds of Halloween observances. Uh, we had one kid who was dressed in a porky pig costume, like one of those inflatable ones. None of the kids knew who, none of the little kids knew who he was. They thought he was Peppa Pig. He was really upset about that. Uh, and there was something like, like, like where, where I did feel a little bit like here we are. It was uh, a reasonably mild night, you know, and, and we were capturing, recapturing some of that that Halloween magic, if you will, cliched as that may sound. Like it's always kind of out there. Uh, at, at Halloween for for if you're in the right situation, I guess the right you know frame of mind or or uh, the, the right costume, I guess. Um, yeah, one of the kids asked me just he was like, Mr. Langan, what are you going to be for Halloween this year? And I was like, I have not thought about that question at all, but clearly I need to start thinking about it. So I love it. It's a magical time every every time it rolls around. Like I know when I think about Halloween, I'm just filled with like the nostalgia of that being somewhere between the ages of five to 15. <laughs> like that to me is that magic age, but you know, you get older, you get a little bit wilder in your twenties. You have such great grand debaucherous times and, you know, you kind of move through seasons of life. It's, it's great. Uh, just all told, but it is cool how you can kind of slip back into that comfortable spooky season right like yeah uh, who, who wasn't said that ha uh, horror writers or halloween people or something like that or october people somebody yeah. said that yeah and that's, i don't know who the, it was but i kind of like no that's bradbury that's that like bradbury? the yeah, yeah. The, the, the back the back matter of like the october country like yeah yeah written for october people yeah but so you were talking about the the ages of Halloween costumes. It's uh, going from Frankenstein to sexy Frankenstein to the hard times. Tell it, <laughs> <laughs> I was never, I never did sexy anything. Um, I, I was like, no, us, us either, sir. <laughs> not, this is not the time. I tell my students that I'm like, this is not the time for sexy, whatever it's Halloween. It's not sexy ween. Uh, so come on, let's get it together. Yep. You can it's do better. -tober. You're not better than that. Prompt put together your own put together your own costume yeah come You're on better than that what else guys you got, got other questions here to throw out no questions i have kind of a, a a very brief story about when i was reading the fisherman and uh ashley my wife was asleep and i had my my lamp turned on and i was reading i was trying to get to the end of a chapter and uh finally made it 
there was a I won't I won't go into it, but there was a dream sequence, and the main character is dreaming about his wife, and and a a, a dark pool that you can't see uh, the to the bottom of, and he's fishing in the in the pool, and it it really wigged me out, and so I I closed the book at the end of the chapter, I uh, turned the light off, I laid down, I'm trying to be quiet so I don't wake Ashley up, and she, like. Uh, the room is quiet. The fan is on. That's all the only sound. And then I hear, what were you reading? (laughs) 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 So (laughs) good for you, Ashley. Good for you. Yeah. She, uh, she scared the bejesus out of me. It was, she was just checking your heart. She was just trying to make sure it was okay. You know, (laughs) that's when I died of a heart attack at age 41. Yeah. She just wants to know how much more time does she have? You know, exactly. Yeah. It was a stress test. One of my coworkers the other day was, uh, one of my coworkers the other day was, was like talking about her husband and she was like, you know, he's in pretty good health. And I was like, well, that's good. Right. And she was like, I don't know. You know, I mean, I could be married to this guy for like a long, long time. She was like, you know, I'm kind of ready maybe for like second singlehood. So, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> now we're getting into the advice part of the. the yeah, yeah, this is the right. really sad part of the conversation. This is the yeah. your wife's like, oh, I should, oh no, he's, he's OK. He did have a heart attack that time. OK, have another nacho, honey. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Here, you need more pulled pork and beer exactly. and pizza. Yeah. You know, you need to. you Who? Got you that milkshake? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, oh man, I didn't even. Who suggested the milkshake? Who was like, you know, honey, why don't we get milkshakes tonight? It was Ashley. Right. Why don't you add some extra sour cream and whipped cream to that? And you were like, are you sure? And she was like, trust me. And you were like, that is delicious. And your arteries were like, we can hear them hardening. Yeah. Mm. It was Treat delicious. yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I need to process this. Luke, you use it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Actually, so this is this is kind of a good little segue with the, the remarks about uh, medical uh, frailties and sort of <laughs> aging. So this is this is a little bit more of a generic kind of horror question, John. But this was something that I was talking with Liz as we were sort of walking around before the, before the call started up, like after dinner, the just sort of strolling around. Uh, and I was like, you know, this would be a cool thing to talk about because it just strikes me that you've had at this point you know, a career that spanned a whole wide variety of short stories and you've written uh, a few novels, you know, as we've, as we've kind of covered here, like how has your own conception of horror, like the things that scare you, the things that you're writing about, you know, is that something that you've noticed to change? Because I don't, not having read Children of the Fang and getting some of those, uh, stories that demonstrate some of your influences. Like, I don't know if they date back any later than Corpse Mouth, but from what you were describing on the call, it seems like they don't. It seems like there's a lot of contemporaneous writing there. Like, is the things that scared you changed? Like, is it more of taking impressions from other writers and now I'm kind of moving into my own territory? Or do you see in, like, do you see things shifting in that regard? Um, I, I mean, I, I want to say it's it's all of the above. Uh, so so there are times when I'll be writing and I'm like, oh my god, you know, I'm, I'm suddenly aware of the presence of another writer, as it were, within my work. I'm like, oh man, that's a, you know, I'm drawing on Stephen King there, or that's a Flannery O'Connor moment, or something like that. So so that still happens. Um, I I am often surprised 
at people finding my stuff scary, which is not to say that I like I, I shouldn't I don't want to sound naive, but a lot of times uh, people will it sounds immodest to say, but people will have like a visceral reaction to something. Thing I've written, then I'll think, oh wow, okay, cool, yeah, awesome. But but I wasn't necessarily thinking that, you know. In in the second story I published, uh, a story called Mister Gaunt, there's a scene where a kid is put in this like stone uh, sarcophagus that eats him, and it's this horrifying, horrifying thing. But at the time. I was just impressed with the fact that I knew that the word sarcophagus came from a Greek word that meant like eater of the dead. And I was like, oh, look at how clever I am, you know? And then later on, I was like, that's really, really messed up. Like, like that's, you know, like, like what's going on here? And um, so I, I think that a, a lot of what I write tends to be, as it were, just where the story is is leading me, you know, sort of in the service of the story. And then afterwards, I'll kind of step away from it. And I'm like, man, that's really messed up. What is what is going on with you, buddy? You know, you need a hug. And I think I, I think that my concept, my my, my con the, the things that scare me, some of it is not changed. You know, no, nobody uh, nobody likes to think about death. Um, nobody likes to think about um, dying or or about what does or doesn't lie on the other side of death. You know, I, I mean, we all know that if there's nothing there, it will make it. You know, you, you won't know it. it, it but but. but trying to wrap your head around that, trying to accept that for me is very difficult. And I guess the fear is, is of being aware of that happening, being aware of your own sort of disintegration strikes mm -hmm. me as, as really, as really, really terrifying, you know, 2016 to 2020, I was really, really anxious about the country and about the, the state of the country in a way that I never had been, uh, my entire life. I, I was really stressed every day. I, I was really just not happy about where things were going. And and um, if I had been a millionaire, I might have, you know, I might have gone to Finland. But as I was not a millionaire, Finland would not have me. So I, I think that's a little bit better, but not entirely. Um, I worry about bad things happening to my loved ones. Um, I uh, the The thought that I can't, protect my kids uh, as much as I would like to uh, is a horrifying thought to me. You know, if, if I spend a lot of time and I know, you know, that's just, that's life. That's what happens. You know, you're, you, you, you have kids so that they can outgrow you. You have kids so that they can go off and do their own thing. Um, that's what, that's what I did right to, to my parents. But it's, it's a difficult thing to accept sometimes um, because you just love them so much and you, you don't want anything bad to happen to them. You know, it's all the cliches, right? So yeah, I, I think that those are, are pretty boring in a way. Um, I also don't like spiders. Um, you know, I, I, um, some years ago, my wife and I were at this place, like a sort of zoo type place. They were doing this, this, like a touch the animals thing, you know? And so they were passing around a little boa constrictor and, and, uh, and I'm afraid of snakes too, but I held the boa constrictor and it was like this really like powerful thing where the snake was actually like warm. I had not expected it to be warm and kind of soft 
And I was like, wow, but what's next? And they were like, here's a tarantula. And I was like, no, thank you. And I mean, I really wanted to. I really, really, but I could, I literally could not make my hands open up. My wife, on the other hand, was like, right, put it here. Um, and afterwards, I was like, what did it feel like? And she was like, well, like its legs felt like little pipe cleaners. And I was like, oh, that's good to know. I'll use that in a story someday. But I will have stolen it from her when anybody reads it. They'll be like, he never held a tarantula. So, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so spiders, big spiders, yeah. John, I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I, have, a con- I have a confession. You're talking to three entomologists on this on this podcast. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're all spiders, and I was going to be, oh, <laughs> And we're spiders. <laughs> That's they what we got me. Unzip our flesh and <laughs> right. just spiders and legs, and you go insane. <laughs> You'll see my insides now. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Uh, what else, guys? Again, I have a really kind tarantula named Rosie, and she she is beloved across Kentucky and Nebraska. She would be very happy to be held by you. Any children you know, and children Rosie. It it fascinates me. Like like I, I am fascinated by consciousness, and I'm fascinated by consciousness, the sort of continuum of consciousness. Uh, uh, we, my wife and I, have dogs, um, and. You know, they. I, I used to think that there's this sort of strict divide between, you know, sort of human and everything else. And that seems to me just so untrue and so inadequate an explanation for, for the way things are. My dogs clearly can understand a certain level of like sort of symbolic thinking. When my dog goes to the door and is like, I need to go pee, you know, that there's a kind of communication that's going, a kind of linguistic exchange that's going on there, you know? And I'm fascinated to think at, at the degree to which the extent to which consciousness kind of moves right down the animal kingdom. And so something like a tarantula, that's like this ancient, ancient kind of spider, you know, is there anything in there? Well, there's just something in the news the other week that was like, bees can dream. And I was like, can they? Okay. So thinking about, you know, say insect consciousness as a radically different kind of consciousness or reptile consciousness, that really fascinates me. What would that consciousness look like? How would we, how, how could we understand that? And maybe it's limited or, or whatever, but, um, it's like what people go through with, with, uh, uh, octopi, right. You know, how smart is the octopus, that kind of stuff, you know, because it's, it's physiology is so, so different from ours. Um, I don't think it's an alien. I just think it's just a, a radically different form of, you know, branch of, of the evolutionary tree. But, um, yeah. I have, I have a large karma de- deficit if insects are are at all intelligent. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's, that's, look, I mean, I was in some, like, one of Moorcock's, uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric stories, you know, like, like, the insects have all kinds of gods because there's a lot more of them than there are of us, you know, so... And what is it, Stephen King revival? I, I think there's Bible, mother. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ants. Ants, yeah, of a yeah. kind. Yeah, just ants all the whole way down. All the way down, yeah, yeah. You're hoping Rosie will, will vouch for you, though. She'll be like, no, no, he was not he, that bad. He always Edwin's. had the juiciest crickets for me. Exactly, yeah. The cricket god is like, you. I will get you. I, that I have <laughs> thought about. Like, we have we have an insectarium that I help run. And like we are food and water to these bugs, and there are times where I'm like, "Am I? What am I to you, <laughs> you cockroaches, you darkling?" You are. No, I had that thought about my dogs. I thought yeah. to myself, you know, like my dogs must see me the way that like the ancient Greeks described their gods. 
you know, I'm incredibly like as far effectively for them, I'm immortal. I've, I've, I've always been here. I always will be here. I can come and go out of my house and they're like, wait, he just left out of that entrance. How did he get over to this entrance? I can do like, I can just disappear into different, like, like suddenly I'm there. Suddenly I'm not there. They can hear things where they're like, well, I, I feel like he's around here somewhere. I have all, all the most incredible food. Right. They're like cheese. Where does he get the cheese from? Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's uh, how they understand us and, and and our relation to them really fascinates me. He rides the great smoke beast and he confronts the mailman. What deity can he be? Right, right, exactly. I have one final question. Do it. Take us home, dude. Uh, the question I have is, which, John, which do you think is the superior Robert E. Howard take? Um, the, the vampire from uh, The Horror in the Mound or the werewolf from in the forest of Villa Fair. I can vividly remember like where I was uh, as a kid reading the horror from the mound. Um, it was in, it was in the collection Wolf's Head, which I mentioned to you guys when we were talking beforehand was um, that, that was just a, a crucial, I, I don't know. Reading it was a crucial experience. I, I, I read that, I think before I read Stephen King, I would say that King was what really turned me into a writer and a horror writer in particular. But I think there were certain things that kind of laid the groundwork for that. And Howard's work in, in particular was was part of that. And I can remember reading the horror in the mound and there's uh, there's a scene where our, our narrative our, our protagonist I just say, looks up and he sees a monster, the vampire's face in the window. And holy cow, did I jump like, like that, that I, I can remember being like, like physically afraid of, of what happened there. So, um, so yeah, I guess I would, I would probably go with, uh, with that. Yeah, that's a good one. It's hard to pick. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, Howard's writing at its best, um, is, is intensely visceral. You know, uh, again, I can remember uh, being in fifth grade math class and reading Rogues in the House. And, you know, Conan is fighting with Thak the Manape. And I have no idea. Like, I could, sir, I can vaguely remember hearing, you know, my, my math teacher, the nun droning on in the background. But, like, I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Like, he's, this thing is going to tear him apart, you know? And uh, I, I was, yeah, just absolutely gripped and, and riveted by that story. Yep, that's what it does to you. It makes you it makes you want to uh, go do some physical activity afterwards, right? Like, yeah, do something with all that energy. Yeah, what's yeah, the, yeah. What's the what's the poem we read that was kind of like uh, multiple scenes or intervals? Like what what Howard wrote, where it's like all of the lives that he's lived, and he's kind of like just inviting you to sail. It was yeah. He just has this way, you know. The blood and thunder is Mark Finn kind of kind of wrote you know and, and took his the the title of his his biography of of howard it's there but it's just it it pulls you in and it has this like authenticity well there's something that's that's really interesting to me i i guess about thinking about howard in in particular because thinking about yeah like like conan is is so much this sort of central character and yet there's also cull who comes you know thousands of years before conan and then after conan and there's bran mac morn and cormac mcard and, and then of course solomon kane and you know there's there's some weird way in in which howard does 
seem to suggest that that there's this kind of cycle that's that's going on. He has a, a story. I think it was actually in Wolf's Head that I read it. Uh, it's called something like Valley of the Worm, and it's it's almost like a kind of barbarian take on the Call of Cthulhu. There's this this monster that's coming up out of the earth, and this hero is going to kill the monster because it's a Robert E. Howard story, right? And at the beginning of the story the the narrator says i've like this is a story you've heard before like this is the story of of saint george and the dragon and this is the story of perseus and the sea monster like this is the story that begets all of those all of those stories and it's it's something that um i've i've been thinking about just just a bit more with with howard the the way in in which there's this kind of cyclical nature nature to, to what's going on. Um, it's always a little bit different. Um, it, Conan is not the same as Cull, and Solomon Cain is not the same as, as Conan, but there are, by God, there are enough similarities, and they, they wind up in enough similar situations, and it's like there's always this need for this this uh, this guy with a, a good sword arm to, to go up against the monsters. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very, very sword and sorcery for, for Robert E. Howard, but this this idea of reincarnation, redemption, racial memory, these things that sort of cycle uh it's the the snake eating itself, Ouroboros style. Like we all hope for that. Uh <laughs> I don't know. I that's the kind of thing and that that I find myself uh thinking about when I kinda contemplate existential dread and, you know, death, right? Like right. maybe maybe things will just sort of roll back around. We can rewind the tape and start it over again in some other iteration and to me, that's pretty badass. Like that's a that's a good. That's I think that's a that's me at my most optimistic. <laughs> We've done this before in past lives, and we'll do it again in the future. We're gonna yep. we're gonna find each other. We're gonna find John Langan, and uh, we're gonna talk about scary stuff. Oh, yeah. I thought you were gonna stick your spiders on me. I was gonna be like, no, they, <laughs> they, they found me with their army of spiders. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Well, so let's go ahead. We've been going. I feel like this is a, a girthy one. This is two hours plus. I feel like, uh, according uh, to audacity, we're at two hours and three minutes. Oh my god! Very so, yeah, uh, so, so, John, uh, what are you getting into? Do you have any stories that are in uh, in the works, or you know, that you can announce coming out in collections, anything like that? So, I have. Um... I have a few stories that are coming out. I have a story in a book called uh, Wilted Pages, which here it is. Wilted Pages, an anthology of dark academia. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've got a story in that. And I have a story in um, Doug Moreno and uh, was it David, David Alexander Ward's uh, Shadows Over Main Street uh, 3, the third volume of that. I have a story in, in that. And I have a, a a story in Ellen Datlow's Christmas anthology. Uh, I think it's called Christmas and Other Horrors, which um, which is the filthiest story I have ever written. I thought to myself, I have not written a lot of sexy, sexy stories, and and in fact, in general, in fiction, that's sort of on the wane. People are like, I don't want to read that, but what about my horror? 
horrible cannibal mutilation story. Oh, yeah, I want to read that. And I was like, this will not stand. So, yeah, I decided to write a story, a Christmas story with sex magic. So uh, that'll be out pretty soon, I, I think. Please don't tell my mother. Um, and uh, and I'm working on a new novel. I'm, I'm about 50 pages into a new novel. It's probably going to be another year until, uh, until I'm done with it. Um, it's sort of... Um, Within the same cosmology as the fishermen, but but a, a very different kind of story. Awesome, that's exciting. Uh, I'm looking here. It looks like uh, the Christmas and other horrors release is coming out at the end of October. Yeah, uh, and it's out there. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of people listed with that one. And I pulled up your wilted pages. Uh, that anthology that you're in, there's even more with that. That is like yeah. a laundry list of, of authors that are in that. I'm very, I'm, so. I'm grateful to still be, to still be asked uh, to be part of these things. You know, there, there's always been a wealth of talent, but man, there's even more at the, at the moment. There's so many great people doing so much good work um, that it, it really, it, it's really quite flattering and quite an honor to be, to receive the invitation to be, to be part of these anthologies. That's awesome, man. I, I love it. Uh, as a quick note here, and I've heard you throw out his name before, but I've read not a whole lot of Glenn Hirschberg, but yes. that author, he really has like of the stories that I've ran into of his, I love his stuff and I need to pick out, like I need to go pick up a collection or, or so of, of Hershberg stuff. Yeah. Hershberg is a brilliant short story writer. Hershberg also wrote, um, a trilogy of vampire novels that should be like, that's what everybody should be talking about when it comes to vampire fiction. Hershberg wrote this. Uh, the first one was called motherless child. The second one was called good girls. And, uh, the third one was called nothing to devour, I think. And, um, what should really happen is they should be collected as an omnibus because each one is like maybe a couple hundred pages long and they follow the same cast of characters over a, a course of several years. And they're, uh, they're just, Hirschberg is an excellent stylist. He's a, he's, he's brilliant at portraying character. And these, um, you know, these novels just, they, they just kind of, did not get nearly the amount of press that they that they should have gotten. I I reviewed the first two for, I think the first one in the L.A. Review of Books and the second one in Locus, um, and I, I was I was I think out of Locus by the time the third one came out. But man, if there were if there were books this this Halloween season, I would be novels. I'd be steering people towards. It would definitely be those vampire books, and. Um, and yeah, Hirschberg, as he's also an incredibly gifted short story writer. You you really can't go wrong with the guy. Awesome. The final recommendations there from a from a well read author and uh, educator and just all around fun guest on the show, man. I have to say, thank you, John. We appreciate no, it. Thank you for having me, Giant Spiders. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh. Let's close out at least our first entry for Chrome Tober 2023. Hopefully yes. there'll be another Chrome another Tober. one coming along. <laughs> Josh, yes. how can good people find us? They can find us on the web at the Chromecast.blogspot.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Twitter X. Sorry, you got me. Uh, it's X now. We are on Facebook. We're at the Chromecast on all those social media platforms. You can call us and leave a leave us a voicemail. That's eight five nine. 429 Chrom and um, email us. We're the Chromecast at gmail.com. 
It's fantastic. I think you can email Krom or call Krom. Krom yeah. is not here right now to take your message. Yeah, you leave a voicemail. We will just <laughs> do it later. We'll Krom laughs at your message. Krom wants nothing to do with you. You're weak. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, man. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We will talk to you a little bit later. Yeah, we will. We casted a pod, guys. Yeah.